0: As John D. O'Neill from the Mountain Goats. You're listening to the LSQ Podcast.
1: Hello, it's Jenny Ellescue. Welcome to the LSQ Podcast, episode 84, the first one of a new season slash new year, season six can't believe I've been doing this show for six years. So grateful to you for listening in general, and to this episode in particular. It's a special one because I've been a huge admirer of the Mountain Goats' John Darnielle for more than 20 years now, so it's an honor to have him on the show. And he's on tour right now in the U.S. It's a duo tour for the Mountain Goats, John and multi-instrumentalist Matt Douglas, and these dates are continuing to support their latest album, Bleed Out, from last year. Let's get into it.
0: I've been seeing your name in magazines since I started doing this. I've never seen your face, so this is very exciting for me.
1: <laughs> oh wow! Well, thank you for saying so. Yeah, it's it's exciting to get to do this with you as well, and and also I'm pumped because you're my first interview of this year, oh, and amazing. so yay! I wish I had a gift basket to bestow
0: digitally oh, to you. The but- power of the rose quartz heart that my friend gave me when we played the Bowie tribute at Carnegie Hall. So this this will.
1: Oh, amazing! Will yes. Do a oh great my energy. god. So how long have you been in Durham now and what made you sort of choose Durham to settle in for this phase of life?
0: We moved here it was it was in the previous phase of my life <laughs> it was in 2003 end of 2003. So I'd been in Iowa for like 7 years. My wife had grown up there and then she graduated from Grinnell in 90 I want to say 7. And so we we worked and lived in Iowa and we you know, we bought our first house, you know, uh, there and my music career was sort of moving. I was on 480, but I wasn't making, it was an extra income. I still had a day job, but I made enough money in 2003 to think about, or wait in 2002, to maybe think about making it a job, you know, and, and my other job, I loved very much uh, working with children in a uh, care setting, uh, seven bed house, but they were important to me, but also there was no like that was gonna be it it didn't really and the pay in those facilities is terrible when it's in states without licensure for that sort of stuff we were very we didn't have any money so i was starting to do okay at the at the gate so so we sat down and talked and uh and about where there were science jobs because that's what she did and i I said well i always have a good time in in chapel hill so we flew out here we looked at some places looked really fun We, we we made a little map with a legend of like where bands go because nobody ever came to Ames. Where do bands go? Where do they have good vegetarian food? Where do they have good science jobs? All this stuff. And yeah, we came and looked at houses here. We couldn't afford Chapel Hill, which was cooler than Durham at the time, but we found a house in Durham and Durham since then has completely exploded. It's like really, you know, lots of people move here now. Downtown doesn't look recognizable compared to what it was like when we moved here. And now I'm the guy complaining that-, that
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, too, also worth noting for listeners, 2002, which you reference, like- you put out two impactful mountain goats albums that year. like 2002 was busy. It took, you know, uh, the grind of doing, doing things kind of the indie way. It's just like, Oh yeah, 2002 was a big year, but two like major albums for you came out that year as well. So it was a lot of work.
0: Yeah, it was. And, the, and it was really, if I was, if I was touring, it was every day. I mean, I looked at the dates. You can go to setlist FM. One of my favorite, you know, I think about this a lot now that Twitter is circling the drain, right? I think, what are the actual good websites that are fun to hang out on, you know, and do stuff with? You think about the old web, you know, and uh, and one of them for me is setlist.fm, not just for my own stuff, but like, you know, we played this venue in Belgium a month and a half ago that they had pictures of, of the Lou Reed show in 74 that he played there in their uh, foyer, And I was like, oh, who else has played? You can go on set list and somebody has uploaded who played there on what they, if the set lists are available, they're up there. And it's really cool to know who was in the room you were in 40 years ago or whatever. So yeah, so I looked at that for 2002 and three and I was grinding, I was, I was, 2003 is the one where it starts to go completely nuts. Cause when we moved here, I looked at my money situation. I said, well, I'll try to do this. And if it doesn't work, I'll I'll figure something out. And, uh, and in a story that is famous in my mind, I was, I was filling out job application, I was volunteering in an animal shelter, and trying to figure out what I was going to do, because I had worked really hard in 2003. And I'd made a living but it was torture I I was out for a a long, long time, it was hard work and I don't love being away from home. So I was volunteering animal shelter maybe thinking I would do that. uh, And that was 2005 and the sunset tree came out and that was the end of that.
1: Wow and also just like bless you for volunteering at an animal shelter that's that's just such a wonderful way to to give your yeah, time. Yeah,
0: it was it was really great. I wish it's what like with my former job. I wish there were more hours in the day because I think it's good to do.
1: Right, but of course like as you've said the the necessity for income just to survive even when you found like an affordable place and the worry that the, um, the influx of money that got you the house was not going to be a constant. And
0: yeah. And you'd see it happen over and over again. It's like, you know, people just lose interest. And, you know, I should say, I don't think anybody would have been able to give me this pep talk, but like, you know, somebody could have said, John, you real, you work really hard. You work all the time. You don't stop writing songs. You don't do an album for 16 months and try and squeeze every last drop of blood out of it. You just keep going. And that was true even then that I'd been doing it for 12 years or so and I, you know it might have been clear to an outside viewer that whatever it is that that drives me it's a very strong drive <laughs> so it's like a, i just keep going <laughs> so
1: yeah i and that's a that's a good moment to kind of um rewind because um yeah my favorite stuff on this show is to really go back to like when you first remember feeling like the roots of that you know when that that drive that maybe now you're more able to identify within yourself. Yeah. When when do you first remember feeling this urge to create, or in, or just a special feeling from creative things?
0: Well, so there's two things. There's the creative urge, and then there's the sort of the hyper generative urge that, that I'm just talking about. They're they're in the same neighborhood, right? But but I started writing when I was very very small. Before I could type, I was making like the, a thing. I always remember is I had this. This really dates me. Because if your listeners are a day under thirty, that to look these names up. But I had these rubber stamps of Stan and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy with there Stan Laurel and, Laurel. and Hardy. Oh, yeah, they had had actually a cartoon. I think made by the same studio that was doing Pink Panther and stuff like that in the late sixties, or seventies. It really tells you how they were really throwing darts. They're like maybe the kids will like a Laurel and Hardy cartoon. <laughs> you know? and so, so they had one, and it was very slapstick. And it, but it wasn't. I mean, those guys were geniuses, you know. And it was just a really cheap Hanna Barbera type cartoon, right? But I had these rubber stamps of them, and I would put rubber stamps on pages and make what was basically a comic book, a sequential thing, where I would have them as characters in a story developing, the one that I remember really well, because it was, it was a problem for me with writing for a long time, was like, I would come up with a good plot and have no idea what was supposed to happen after the plot gets in motion. And in this one I had, because I had these stamps and the other stamps I had were just a bunch of, with the alphabet. So I had them being chased by a monster who was a long string of letters. Right? <laughs> like, and, uh, and I remember, I don't have it anymore, but I remember that like the monster was dangerous and was going to eat them. and was swarming around them and then they befriended befriend it, right? That was it. So that was the first one. And I wrote a lot of poetry in high school. And that's sort of when I noticed that once I get going, I mean, at the time, and this poetry was terrible and I'm very glad that it's gone. But I would sit down and write three and four in a night. And the third or the fourth one would be the good one, not the of you know, I mean, relatively speaking. They'd all be terrible, but but the third one is where I'd start to get my get my head of steam. And it happens a lot with songs to this day. That once I hit the vein, well, the first song's nice, and I'll send it to the guys. I'll get very excited. I won't get anything back, and it's because Peter knows that this is just the intro stuff. John will get really good once he's really going. You know, although I have to say, the stuff that we're working on now the first song of the bunch I didn't send to the guys I held it back by accident and then just last week we were looking at the song list and I said oh what I'm so what's bike you guys don't have bike I said it and Peter wrote it said, so this is the centerpiece of the record <laughs> he almost forgot to send it to him so uh, amazing
1: I mean it's yeah. interesting because you know I know in sometimes in visual arts there's this idea of like first shot best shot you know like the idea and 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 to rewind though again to that that moment writing the poetry wh- who did you think you were <laughs> you know what I mean like who what was Whoa. your what was your inspiration or what was the when you thought of yourself writing poetry what you know what were you emulating at that point
0: So I had started writing short stories when I was like 10. And then I was wanting to be like the science fiction writers, especially Harlan Ellison. I was one of those. So Harlan Ellison is this writer, everybody who's in science fiction pretty much went through a phase with. He was really great and very creative. He himself went through a long burst of sustained, intense creativity. And then seemed, I think, to stop writing, though I think nobody actually says that, but I think he did. But he was super productive. It was a big model for me. He he would do a sort of parlor trick thing where... um, if there was a bookstore that he wanted to get people in the doors buying books, he would bring his typewriter there and set up, and there would be signs saying "Do not bother Harlan while he's writing." Right, but he would write a story with people in the store. The pages would go up as they came off the typewriter. Right, and he was big on work ethic stuff. He also—I don't want to say an imperfect guy in a lot of ways, but 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 a big inspiration. One of those inspirations who, when you're passing through him as a phase of inspiration, he's a really important figure. One of his big things was the dignity of the writer. Right, that the writer that people doing stuff with writing can't do anything without it and they can't do it themselves and uh, so I'm writing short stories on 12 I want to be Harlan Ellison I'm sure they they sounded like a 12 year old trying to to fake that tone his tone is very distinctive he inserts himself a lot into the work in my maturity that's the exact opposite of what I'm trying to do I would like to sort of I wish I could publish anonymously. That's sort of my dream. <laughs> so, But uh, but Harlan Ellison was one of those guys like the writer is king and believes very strongly in the self in a little bit. So I wanted to be like him or Theodore or Sturgeon or Carol M. Schwiller or Robert Aikman, all these stories of strange, short, writers of strange short stories. And then when I discovered poetry, I mean, probably Cummings, E.E. E. Cummings, I think every 14-year-old who reads Cummings thinks they've just discovered dynamite, you know, <laughs> it's
1: did you already back then get a sense of relief of some kind from just giving yourself the time to be creative or like?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would shy away from the word relief because I don't get relief from it. I get like, it's a, a very blissful agitation, but I mean, I recognize it as like, I mean, it feels, it feels pathological. It feels like a hormonal surge. You know, it's really very intense. It's very pleasant. I really enjoy it, but it's like, you know, uh, when I worked in mental health, I'd work with people whose bipolar disorder was very pronounced and you maybe they'd get in on a 72 hour hold, you know, just completely unmedicated for months or maybe their whole lives. And, uh, you know, I talk very fast, but these guys would be talking very fast and there'd be so many ideas firing and you learn as a nurse, you go, this guy's unhappy. You know, it's like there's some pleasant, there's something in it that's fun, but there's also suffering. You know, it's like you want to find a, a place where that's not going to result in some terrible crash, you know, well when I'm in a creative state, it feels like that looks to some extent that like, I mean, it's really, I'm super into it. And I also am worthless. You know, it's like the only thing I'm I'm of any value to is the thing I'm writing. As a husband and father, I have watched my wife realize that I'm in that zone and just sort of start doing stuff that's actually my lookout because I'm not, I mean, I could, I could, I'm sure I could physically go, okay, stop doing the thing. But it really is like slipping into an alternate timeline for me. What's funny about that is I don't, it's some, I consider that something I do, not something that happens to me. It's a choice. It's work. It's labor. Right. It's not a bolt of inspiration striking. It's a task that you learn. Part of doing that task involves sort of the temperature in your head going up. The same as if you work in welding, then part of that involves being around hotter stuff or right? the temperature of the room is hotter. But I don't believe in in the idea of like, you know, that something being imparted to me. It's something I do. Now, when I go into it, I can really choose how long to spend. Uh, you mentioned it all. 2002 at All Hell West, Texas was one of those. My wife was out of town at a hockey camp in, in Banff, Canada. So I was alone in the house for like a week. I had my job, but that was only eight hours a day. And I just went into the zone and stayed there. And I wrote half the album that week. <laughs>
1: And when did the, when did the musical component of creativity so you talked about short stories and poems, but you were obviously listening to music and, and having favorite songs and artists already oh, yeah. by that time. How did those kind of tracks start to merge?
0: So I mean, like everybody else uh, in the 80s, um, you know, I had several bands that I was in. But I really did want to write poetry, and I won a poetry contest. And I uh, and and then in my twenties, I was I was doing it again, and I got published a few times. And I was, you know, there's these books, the writers' market, poets' market, where you can look up these quarterlies. These uh, like there there used to be more of them, but uh, but they're still around. And you send out your poems in bunches with a self-addressed envelope, and they come back often with a little commentary. Going, this isn't quite right for us, but I kind of like this or whatever. A couple of them got published. I was sort of on my way. And I was working as a nurse, a psychiatric technician at Metropolitan State Hospital in employee housing where I lived. I worked at the unit across the yard from from my uh, studio apartment, which was like in a 30s building, right? It's sort of deco tile, but mind Ooh. you, no, yeah, no, <laughs> that's the thing. The deco tile uh, to me was a big bonus, but if you invited people over, they would think you were living in an SRO, right? It was very, and my stereo was still at my mom's house, but I had a boom box I had bought because uh, another band I was working with, we were wanting to use it. And those guys, one of those guys, uh, moved up to Northern California. So now it was me alone in this room, this boombox, writing all these poems. And I was making money. I had paid off my, um, this fine, the two fines I had had for legal stuff, trouble I had gotten into. And uh, and so I was making money with no real, I was 22, 23 years old, no responsibilities really, you know. and uh, And I bought a little guitar just to, Fuck around with, and I was playing it, and and I would just grab a poem of the stuff I'd been working on and throw it into the, into the tune. That's how the Not Good's had started. It was like I just you know had this boombox, had this little guitar, had some poems. The poems sounded pretty funny, I thought, set to music. That was the virtue. It was like they were kind of cool, but they were weird, you know. But I didn't have any sense that there were other people doing outsider stuff or anything. I knew Daniel Johnston. That was it, right? Like I wasn't really, my listening wasn't. I wasn't in that world. Although I did have. I did buy, and I've been trying to write a song about it for years, Fact Sheet 5. Do you remember Fact Sheet 5? I, I know the name, but yeah, tell me more. It was a zine that would have the capsule reviews, but not so much reviews as descriptions, which I think is an incredibly valuable resource that's hard to think about in the digital age. You could not go and hear it, but there was weird music all over the world, almost impossible to find. Nobody's broadcasting it. There's no place how you have to know but like somebody. the tra- or like the Trouser Press. Of course, there was then there was that trouser as well. press was a good one. Yeah. But like unless you were in New York, you're your access or, or London or wherever your access to this stuff was very limited. Fact Sheet 5 was a zine that would just have these capsule descriptions and addresses of stuff and you'd go, huh? Muddy sounding noise from the British Midlands. That sounds like something I might like. And you would put five bucks in the mail. And cross your fingers right and uh so i was aware of that stuff but i hadn't really heard much when i was setting my poems to very crude guitar sequences i was just trying to do something weird because because th- another thing i was doing at the same time was singing frankie valley lyrics over the sound of the the test pattern at 3am my girlfriend bought me a tv because she thought it was weird that i didn't have one I said, she said, what kind of TV would you want to I say? I want a black and white one. And she looked like a like, like space, but she but she bought me a cheap black and white TV. And, and at 3 a.m., I would find like a snow pattern and turn that on and then sing Frankie Valli lyrics over. It sounded ghostly and weird, you know, to me. And so
1: I want to hear that shit. I want to hear it's, that. Shit. It's on a tape in the office. Frequencies, man, those white, it. those white noise frequencies are awesome. There's so much in there's so much music
0: in the frequencies, right? Yeah. But, especially, but if you put them into that boombox, like it just, it just wound up being this very lonesome, bizarre. To me, things like that, you can't help but write a story about the person making it. it like it creates a story, which is almost never gonna be a true story about the circumstances of its composition. Well, then it's kind of Spanish, right? Like in the sense of, you know, or, or, or Garcia Marquez, but, but like also Villa Matas, all, all these Spanish writers who like to tell stories, that are half true. And, uh, and those are fun. That's the terrain of fiction. And so... I wanted to make stuff that if I had just dropped it off someplace and somebody had picked it up, they'd say, I found the weirdest thing.
1: <laughs> and but you so you described though having been involved with bands before you started yeah. doing this and got the guitars. And and obviously Frankie Valley's art, you know, you were not, it's not like you weren't listening to music. I mean, what was the sort of oh, yeah. what was the what were the, you know, very foundational kind of musical
0: things that you gravitated toward
1: first? And so and yeah, what were those other bands you were playing and what was that? So about?
0: this is the thing is like the mountain goats don't sound like anything. Any of the stuff that I was into, right, right. right. Um, but my brief musical development is—I mean, again, I, I got to apologize in advance that my stories are so long and I, they do come back to the I love it—the it. point. But so, so when I was a child, my father was a jazz pianist, and my parents divorced when I was five. But prior to that, I had a little record player, and the children's records that I listened to, which were soundtracks—the soundtrack to the Aristocrats, um, some. Pickwick Records Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack that had been bought for me when I thought I was going out with my mom and my aunts to see Fiddler, but to the movie, but it was only them going and I was bummed. I was like four. So they brought me, they stopped by a department store and found the $1.99 knockoff soundtrack and gave me that. Right. So I listened to that, the Aristocats. um, uh, What else did I have? God, tons of stuff it seemed like so much it was probably like 10 records right uh and and some of those book and record things you know the, D- the disney stuff uh it was all children's stuff and i was very very into it and one of the first stories i told myself was was how it worked because i had, nobody had explained recording so i thought people lived in the grooves you know i was three and four years old and i and i thought they had to sit around in a room waiting until you put it on and then they got up and picked up their instruments and uh And the reason I tell about the children's records is because I think if you're a music person, this is a funny story, right? That like, I stayed into those for a while. We moved from my father's house into an apartment across town and then up to a duplex in Milpitas. And I was still very into my records. They were children's records. I didn't share them with anybody. They were my thing, right? And and I was very into music. My, My friend Scott would always tell me to stop singing. I would wander around singing constantly. And, and I, then we moved back. There was a lot of moving because we would keep running away from my stepfather and coming back. It was a whole thing, right? And, and we moved in with my grandmother in Claremont. And I was new in school and cool is just becoming a thing when you're eight, right? It's just, it's the point at which prior to that, everything's very innocent and eight is sort of right around the time when you can start to learn there's a pecking order. And uh, and the teacher said, you know, hey, tomorrow, if you guys want to bring in your records, um, I'll, you can use the record player tomorrow. And I thought, this is my chance because I have an amazing record collection. I got I got the Aristocats, I got Fiddler on the roof, I got the music man, I got the I got the good stuff, right? These I know a lot and I know every song. I know all the words. Music man, forwards and backwards. And I and I got this stuff backwards and forwards, man. They will see that I'm cool because I haven't I haven't established my cool yet. But because God is kind, God saw fit to prevent me from remembering, remembering to bring my records in the next day when all the other kids brought the Beatles and Elton John and the Bay City Rollers. And if I had brought in the Music Man and the Aristocats, I would have been clowned down the block across the street and into Pomona. It would have been an absolute catastrophe. And I was completely aware of it because I showed up the next morning and Eric Ratnaff says, Hey, I brought this. He shows Elton John's Friends soundtrack, which to me looked like that's the dangerous stuff from the future. You know, I was afraid of adult music. There was something very frightening in it to me. And, uh, and I, and I saw it and I went, oh, you forgot to bring your records. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you God. <laughs> it's like so, uh, But that was the year that I got into other stuff. And I got into what everybody else was into, which was the those two comps of the Beatles, the red and blue ones, Sergeant Pepper, um, you know, everybody listened to the Beatles. The Bay City Rollers were coming up that year and we would discuss who was going to uh, have a more lasting impact on music, uh, the Bay City Rollers or the Beatles, right? <laughs> I really the, remember those conversations. Elton John was huge at the time. And the following summers, especially when I would go to stay with my dad, my dad was a bachelor was trying to remarry, but he was also sort of working the bachelor circuit. And this is 76-ish, 75, 76. So I would wind up in these central California apartments of my dad's friends. My dad was an English professor, he smoked some weed, he hung out with a fairly hip, five years younger than him crowd, maybe. And I would be dragged over these houses so he could visit and I would just sit there flipping through their records. Okay, this one was recorded where, who? Oh, same guy. Oh, Elton John, same drummer, every record. That's weird. These other guys switch drummers all the time. I'd just be flipping at, but at the same time, I was terrified of these records, right? I was like, there's something about them seemed very, very, it had a dark energy to it. My dad's prospective girlfriend's friends who'd also be around the house would sometimes stop and explain them to me, you know? I remember I really liked The Bitches Back by... Elton John. And the guy said, Oh yeah, that's a good one. This next song is way tougher. And he played me something off of goodbye yellow brick road. And I was like, that's not as good as the bitches back. It's intriguing to
1: me as someone though, who, who, you know, eventually got has gotten so
0: into metal, which is just like the ultimate scary grown up music. I mean, the thing is I, this is a thing I try to explain to myself because I didn't have any stomach for gore or anything you know, too sad or tragic. I, I was very easily frightened as a child. And I and I liked things, I liked good stories with good endings. But I mean, if you know my story, and I always try not to dwell on it because I sort of feel like I have told this story. And I mean I'm always glad when when it benefits somebody to hear it, but I also I don't want to be the guy milking my trauma narrative because I'm fine now. It's like I've I've had a lot of therapy and you know I'm lucky to be in a position where I say that everything that happened to me You know, I've managed to make it work for the better. So I don't want to be constantly rehearsing stories of my trauma. I told those stories. I hope they do good out there in the world. You know, that's not how I define myself. At the same time, when you go from what seemed to you a good, intact two parent household, which it wasn't, obviously, right? But it seemed that's how it felt until I was five. And then you go into the chaos of moving and moving again and then fleeing because it's abuse, right? And then going back into the abusive household. And then this moment that everybody knows if they've been through this, where like, okay, it'll be better this time well, It won't. <laughs> and so and so when it starts to disintegrate again, and, and you go, Oh, yeah, well, no, it is once, you know, and, and, and this whole process happens, right? Well, when that stuff happens, eventually, in the art you consume, you start to develop a taste for vicariously having, you know, both some of the violence you're experiencing, can can become something you need in your life, right? You, because, because if you experience that in gore movies, or in hard music, or whatever, right, or in, or in fiction, you have control of it there, you you get to say how much and when. And that's really great. That's that's the nature of catharsis, right? I mean, I wonder also, if just knowing sort of the
1: kinds of things that you seem to gravitate toward, if the, the metal thing is sort of like, it's the story of it all that is part of the ongoing appeal to you is that it's, you know, it has all the trappings of a story visually in the name much more so than like in modern times, you know, rock and alternative rock and indie rock is very sort of aloof in its presentation and, yeah. and metal is like, you know, gives you so much material to work with. I think it's interesting, you know, that in your career as a professional writer, you know, that the first, if this is correct, what I've read that the first published thing that you wrote like that was a 33 and a third yeah, yeah. book on black sabbath master of what's the album called sorry Master of reality yeah. master of reality master and, of and reality that, yeah. yeah and that you wrote it as a as a as a fictional narrative instead of a small book length appraisal of the album which a lot of the the, yeah. the series was at that time they've gotten more experimental since then but i'd love to hear you talk about that and and also just sort of how you began to do more lengthy fiction writing, you know, in your adult life.
0: So the thing with metal is like, uh, the story part is a big part of it. But also, I have a thing. If you see me react very strongly against some style or something, you could probably place a bet in Vegas and get odds that I'm going to really like that later. Same, same. I'm, I'm very like that. Like, well, the first time I heard Lifter Puller right who'd be like the album became one of my favorite albums of all time and I went no man come on no it's not 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 right now you guys yelling about stuff you know and uh and Franklin I think said that's a really good record I was like okay I'll give it a second chance was like, oh my god this guy's brilliant lyricist and uh but but with heavy metal the first time I heard about it it was somebody speaking about it dismissively and as a child Anybody who had even a semblance of authority speaking dismissively about something, I would want to adopt their position. You know, all, all I had to do was hear, was like, oh, yeah, you know, he never made another good movie after Notorious. I mean, yeah, I know Hitchcock, I would tell you the next day. After Notorious, it's no good. Right? It's like, I wouldn't, and I would front, I would completely like, I would just, I was a guy adopting positions when I was a child. And, uh, Somebody—it was probably a girl I had a crush on in prepubescence—had said that heavy metal was too violent, right, or something like that. And I was like, "Yeah, no, I don't like that," you know. And so then I got very interested in it, you know. I just—I had that that process of attraction of wanting to know more about the thing that I've decided arbitrarily that I don't like. And uh, and I had a neighbor who I wasn't tight with at all. He was—he was sort of a stoner. Not—he you know, didn't get—I got—I got stoned more than he did, but he was—he was a Hesher kind of kid, right. And I was a theater arts department kid, and uh, and I started asking him about his Iron Maiden records. And he had a stereo in the garage, uh, and he lived right next door. And he started playing them for me. And I was very intrigued. I was also interested in the idea of me as a guy who listened to Iron Maiden because it was kind of transgressive. I liked Lou Reed. I liked David Bowie. You know, I, I was that kind of guy. And uh, and I, you know, you look at at the various music corners when you're a young music fan, you wonder which what if i'm in that one how do i how do i look in there you know and uh and i liked i liked that idea and then i get into music and later the thing is like i think of all that stuff as, as ancillary that the thing i like about metal these days is the same thing i like about jazz that like most metal players are astonishing players compared to in my field of indie rock where most of us can play you know but we have we're thinking about it in a different way usually when we come to the table we're, we're thinking about what we have to bring in terms of a big sound picture in terms of whatever else we have but metal guys like the worst metal guitarist is better than me any day <laughs> those guys are good and i like that stuff i really respond a lot to that you know it's it's uh it's, it's wondrous to me
1: yeah so also a curious about starting to write books and kind of undertaking that as a because because clearly right. that's something that you have to similar to the way you're describing being creative and devoting all your brain power to it when you're doing it with music. I would imagine writing, you know, writing a novel, let alone three, like, you know, it that, that carves out a huge portion of energy when, when oh, you yeah. do it.
0: So, well, the thing is, I I think I've told this story, but I always, I always feel bad about this story, given how fierce the competition is now to get a 33 and a third published. But this was like 2006, I think. And it was still fairly, I mean, they they were out there. But you know, when when they sent out a call for pitches, it wasn't like the Swarm it later became. And I had been writing a lot of music criticism for various New Times outlets. And I think I wrote for Magnet some. I can't remember who all I wrote for. But it was a thing I was doing and people knew it. And I had a website, right, uh, Last Planet of Jakarta, that updated every Sunday night. Right? And there's a long form pieces. And I also had a hard copy of the zine that I did six or seven issues of. Um, so my name was known as it's another thing John does. And I mean, you probably remember this writing for new times. That was a really good second income. It was like, you know, in, until the rug got pulled out, that was like really helpful. And so yeah, my stuff would get picked up by the, the Palm beach outlet. It would be an extra 50 bucks every time somebody else ran it, you know, and uh, as so I was doing this and I wrote mainly about metal cause I'd gotten so into it and, in the indie sphere in 2006, the amount of music that people were into had grown a lot since 95, but there was a lot of stuff that people got into, but nobody was really into metal at all yet, except Aquarius records. A lot of guys at Aquarius were super interested in that. And I was looking at the 33rd list and I'd go, well, this is, all, this is all a certain type of canon. This is all people who have bachelor's degrees canon. And that's fine because that's the people who are likely to be writing the books anyway. But I was like, there's a lot of music you know, the beauty of music is that you don't have, need any kind of education whatsoever to respond very deeply to it, right? And, and your response isn't better just because of the terminology you have to describe it. There is no better or worse response. So David Barker wrote to me and said, hey, all your friends are pitching and you're not. And we're all wondering why you're not pitching. Because I had like, I'd done amp and stuff. I experienced, it's now called something else, I think. but But I had presented a paper there. And they said, why aren't you pitching? I said, well, I don't think you guys are that interested in the stuff that's interesting to me. I said, well, you should try. And well, I was encouraged then to, to come up with an idea to pitch a record. And so I first thought what I wanted to write about was metal. And I, I came up with a fictional framework because that was where I knew the music through, was through people like the narrator, through, uh, through people who, you know, I worked in adolescent psych wards in the mid 80s when people were getting their tapes taken away. And, and when kids would put up posters of kicks, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I was there during the boom, uh, the, the hair, metal, hair metal boom, but also the rise of Metallica. Like the morning after Metallica played the AMAs, I think it was the AMAs, and Shredded. Do you remember this? I don't. No, it was the Grammys. It was the Grammys because that was when Jethro Tull beat them for Best Metal Band. But Metallica played one on the Grammys and, and just, and it was an astonishing moment. And I worked uh, a drug rehab the next morning and there was a dude in there who was a full-on Hesher. And I was like, "Were you able to see the Grammys last night? And he said, "No, but I heard they shredded. it. <laughs> it was a really amazing moment. but that was the that was the stuff that I sort of felt. And I still think, even though we have such better coverage, that there's a there's a leaning toward describing music either in sociocultural or highly aestheticized terms. And I'm always wanting to ask what are other ways of talking about music? You know, whatever the other way is, that's what I'm interested in.
1: Yeah, I think it is. It's, you know, observing and participating myself over, you know, 30 years now or something. (laughs) It is uh, interesting to me the way that uh, writing about music and describing specifically what you're talking about, which is just using words to describe what music sounds like um, that just how little it's changed or how little what's thought yeah. to be the correct way to do it has changed over the time I've been watching it and reading it and participating in it like considering how much the technology has changed and i guess yeah. the the big innovation there although you know it's not a thing i actually consume myself but is something like the needle drop you know anthony fantana yeah. who does those video reviews um but it's so popular with I assume like fairly young people which is really interesting and and that but point being yeah you don't see very much innovation in like how we use words to describe music given how much technology has changed there's still this expectation that it's a classic format that is done in a classic way with like very little thought of it changing
0: if, if and when you want me to move along from this subject, I'm infinitely interested in this subject because I because I grew up reading music criticism and it meant so much to me, right? Like the, the Trouser Press guide that you cite, the Mountain Goods were in it. And I was like, oh my God, we're in it, we count, you know? And prior to that, like the Encyclopedia Illustrated uh, History of Rock and Roll, you remember this book? It had like Langdon Wenner's piece on Beefheart in there I'm not the only person. I was shaped by it. and And I, I read this before hearing the record. It sells you the beef heart myth of beef heart teaching all the guys to play their instruments. A total myth. False, right? And so, so these books are really important to me. But then when high speed comes to everybody in 2003, there's a great democratizing that is good that I'm not complaining about. But it also means that I don't need you and you don't need me to tell you what it sounds like anymore. You can go hear it for yourself. You don't, I don't. No amount of good language I can use about it will ever be what the music is. The music is music is greater, you know, and uh, and so that's the point at which uh, music criticism undergoes a shift. But I don't think it's a shift that people are thinking that hard about. I think they're just acting on the fly. And I think the genius of people who went straight to to video is like to say this form has to be approached in a different way. Where that's weird for me is what it becomes a very personal way. I'm less interested in the personal. I, I don't want a connection with that person at all, right? I I want a good piece of writing or video, I guess, but I mean, video is necessarily personal. You're looking at the person's face, right? You know, uh, present company accepted. I, I, I don't want to be looking at somebody's face.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, yes, if you like a writer and they can, and their way of writing about music is so effective in, in the way you hear, the way you read, and then can imagine from there, like you would seek out that person's, writing again about music and trust them but you don't know what they look like i mean pre-internet you don't know what the person who wrote it looks like they could be an old they could be an old man they could be a young man they were probably a man but what are you gonna do almost certainly (laughs) but yes it's true with with video you are up against your own predisposed opinions and yeah. do I like that guy's glasses or yeah. whatever it might be.
0: Well, and, and all the other million things you can learn about the people doing it. I mean, then this is the thing is like, everything becomes very branded. Whereas, and I, this is a way in which you can tell that I'm 55 years old, right? It's like, I would really like for people who like my music to be able to do so with no interest whatsoever in whether they like John Darniel or not. I have no interest in anybody liking John D'Arneal. I don't care. It's like I don't, I mean, obviously, I don't want people to dislike me. I'm like anybody else. I hope hope people think I'm a nice fellow. I try to do my best, you know. But I'm not interested in the John Darniel brand at all. I'm, I'm only interested in the stuff I'm doing. The stuff I'm doing is interesting to me, and I am separate from it. I'm the person who makes it. But I'm not trying to get people to say, John, you're good. I don't know. I'm not. John, you're a genius. I hate it. If people say, no, I'm not a genius. I'm a hard worker. Right? I do some hard and good work. I've developed some skills. That's not the world we live in now. And that whole video movement is part of that, that like you buy into this person's brand. I agree with him because I agreed with him last week because I said I have clicked like and subscribed. And, and I, I really, I hate that. It's like, you know, it's really, I have to do a lot of video content now. It's like, if it was up to me, there'd be no pictures of me anywhere at all.
1: I didn't realize when you were talking earlier about having your website that you, that you updated weekly, I, I wasn't um, familiar with that, but so that, you know, you were pretty because early never
0: advertised anywhere at all.
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess I just, I, I was, you know, I was not an internety early on, you know, in my adulthood, I was still sort of like, okay, you know, I got, I got in uh, when it was time or whatever, but, but you're, you know, having had a blog, you know. Yeah. Before they even called it a blog, it sounds like. So yeah.
0: So I was I was on the internet early because I went to college late. I went I went back to college when I was 24. So I was in a a computer lab during what they called the eternal September, which is when all the colleges got online and suddenly these private little chat rooms and stuff got flooded with new people, which happened every September for a number of years, right? And then those people would get very excited and they'd go away. After the eternal September, is just September on the internet every month, right? There's just so many, pe- so many new people, you can't have the small things you had before. I got on in, I think, fall of 94. So yeah, so I was, by, by 99, I'd done one or two issues of the zine, and I got the idea to do it on the internet. And I updated weekly for a long, long time, long pieces uh, that had some good effects. The, some of them are offline now, like the Radiohead, when... Um, not Kid A. What was after Kid A? Amnesiac came out. I thought it was so good, and I had disliked Kid A, and everybody else thought it was great. I wrote a piece of, every week about Amnesiac for every song, and we did a lot of interesting things with the graphics. and The final piece was in Flash, and it fa- the lines of it faded up and faded down, so you had to read it in that timing. and I was pretty proud of it. You try and look at something in Flash lately? <laughs> I have not. And that's why you'll never see this piece again because Flash doesn't exist anymore. So, so, uh, so yeah, so I did that for the longest time. I'm curious- You've curi- twice to using the internet different than other people do. Uh, and I'm curious about this. I know I'm not the interviewer here, but I'm-, I'm, I'm
1: I mean, uh, I guess I just, it's like I, I just try not to look at it too much or something. Yeah. I try to look at it in a very targeted way where I look up what I'm researching or preparing for or need to know for my radio job or, or whatever, but I don't really consume like whatever is trending, you know? And I get that people just enjoy, they're like, oh, I like watching lots of TV shows. So I want to watch what everyone just watched, you know? If ever, yeah everyone's watching you know Wild Lotus I'm gonna watch it too I haven't seen it either. White Lotus that's what it's called I said white. Wow. I hear it's big that's how I often no I mean I watched episode one then I got distracted I'm in a Columbo phase I do. now I, I just started I've been watching good. episodes of Columbo I don't know if you fuck with Columbo but
0: oh who doesn't fuck with Columbo I mean
1: I had never watched Columbo until it came on some random oh. channel and no, then you know. I was like I think I need to watch all the Columbo's oh, now so Columbo's that's my a really
0: funny show. I, and this is going to sound like planned promotion, but it's not. You may or may not have heard, and you probably didn't if you're not on social media, that I did uh, some acting and music writing for my friend Ryan Johnson. I did
1: hear that. I was going to ask you about that, so go
0: on. There's new show Poker Face, which is being compared in the press materials to Columbo, because it's a mystery of the week type show. Um, and with a through line, right with with through line characters and stuff. and uh, and so,
1: because yeah, i
0: w- I watched
1: the trailer last night. I saw a quick flash of you. Yeah. in that how how did that? and obviously you you and, and Ryan have collaborated before,
0: yeah. so I've known Ryan for a long time uh, now. Uh, I, he actually ordered a last Plane of Jakarta t-shirt uh, from the we we had a very short run of like fifty t-shirts in like two thousand and two or something like that. And when he made his first movie, my wife said, oh, I think this guy ordered a shirt. And we went to the box of old orders and there it was. And then he had named the music that his brother wrote for the uh, his first movie for uh, Brick, right? And we watched the credits and the credits rolled and it said, music by the Hospital Bombers Experience. This is a reference to a Mountain Goat song, right? I was like, what? <laughs> and so I got in touch and he shot a, a video for me and then another video and he kept getting bigger. He's got this amazing brain. He can hold a very complex storyline with many different points and points of entry and exit in his mind all at once, right? He can think of more things than I can at once. So, yeah, so I text him all the time about whatever. I mean, I think if you're, one of the things about knowing me is that you're liable to get some text that says, Ryan, Ryan, have you read Jean-Patrick Manchette? <laughs> and he'll say, no, he oh, you have to read this. You will love this guy. So, so yeah, I'm texting about something and he said, uh, maybe I sent him a song, I don't know. And he said, hey, I had an idea. What are you up to? in june said, so i'm touring what's up and he, he said well there's this show and i had an idea that you could you could have something to do with it and we worked it out and uh and i wound up writing the music and the lyrics i wrote most of the lyrics and the vocal melodies and jamie jaster from hate breed wrote the music because it's supposed to be a metal-ish band and i can't actually write metal i know about it but i can't actually i can't do the thing whereas jamie is like really i mean he's really able to write like three different stuff he's sort of um like you could ask jamie give me give me a you know a power metal sort of jam and then give me a doom metal jam and then give me a sludge metal jam i'm going to need them by tomorrow morning and i guarantee you he could provide you with one serviceable jam of each of those genres by tomorrow morning so nice. so yeah so we worked together and did that stuff i tracked the stuff here in durham and uh, and it was very funny to to then be on the set you know with chloe Savigny and 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 the band lip syncing to this stuff <laughs> that I had tracked my parts, my scratch vocals down here that Jamie did at his studio in Connecticut.
1: You know, that uh, as a foray, uh, you know, a musical foray though, into, into the, you know, visual form like that. I wonder, is that another realm like write, writing for writing a feature film or writing a TV series or or that kind of a thing? It seems like something that w- you're naturally suited to as a storyteller and, and, might... and your tendency to have, ongoing stories that you can adapt
0: so i mean i'm kind of curious about whether i would be able to but on the other hand i just don't watch anything i really don't right and so so it would feel sort of weird to me like i write books and i read books i read a lot of books i love them i'm very 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 into them and most i mean most 100 of the books i read are better than my books right it's like i'm proud of my books but i read titans you know i read i read people who i just you know I, I, I read. I can't believe they exist, you know, or existed, you know. Like I was, I, I'm, I'm getting into Balzac now. Oh my God! Have you ever spent any time with Balzac? I have not. <gasps> Did you know that he spent most of his career writing a series of interconnected novels called The Human Comedy? And they're all like the whole world of Paris in the 19th. Well, not the 19th century, but, but, but starting there and, and heading. And it's, it's he's one of those big vision dudes that he seems to have had the whole vision for it in a very short period of time. What a
1: title, uh, the human comedy, geez. Yeah. No, and so wait, and, do and, you start at the beginning reading no, something like that? I
0: found online somebody, it was another one of these cases where I found like a WordPress site where somebody had gone, here's what my reading group has decided is the best reading order for the, I was like, oh, that's great. But no, I just dipped in, I found out because I had an NYRB book that turned out to be one of them because it's most of what he wrote is in that is in is in these dozens of novels i think but the point is like i read that and then i go back to what i do and i hope to maybe scratch that at some point you know
1: it's good to know you're in your balzac phase i'm in my colombo phase you know it's, oh yeah yeah
0: yeah <laughs> colombo is great though colombo is really remarkable and there's also what he was in peter falk basically playing the peter falk character was in at least one or two like movies as that character but that were by like um you know, artsy directors. Yeah,
1: but uh, and also someone was telling me about, I haven't done my Peter Falk deep dive yet because I'm like, okay, I have, I still have another 30 plus episodes of Columbo to watch first. You're going to see the
0: whole run. Wow.
1: Yeah, I'm going to watch, that's what I'm watching until I, I watch one a night, just one one episode a night and I'll watch them until I run out. Anyway, for listeners, you're going to hear me talking about Columbo a lot in the first few episodes of LSQ for this
0: year. So deal with it. That is so good. That is really great. You know,
1: I think, John, I think we are at a good place to wrap up for, All right. for this conversation.
0: What a joy talking with you. You are great. You have a great voice, and uh, it's really, yeah, it's an honor.
1: That was awesome. Huge thanks again to John Darnielle for that conversation. And the Mountain Goats tour I mentioned earlier, the duo tour where it's John and Matt Douglas, is on the road in the U.S. right now. You can get info at mountain-goats.com. And that brings us to the end of episode 84. Thanks again for listening. If you've got questions or feedback, I'm at Jenny LSQ on most platforms. Talk to you next time.